microphone check one two what is this it's the five foot seven assassin in the podcast business and we're back with another episode of qlc tv my name is rohan and i'm the host of this lovely show where i aim to give you authentic insight into the world of music which will be a primary focus as it's my absolute utmost passion in the world i just love music I'll also be talking about politics, culture, sports, as well as personal topics related to growing into adulthood. As all of this is delivered from the perspective of a 25-year-old Indian man living in Canada, trying to make sense of not only myself, but of the world. So all in all, I thank you so much for listening and taking part in this creative journey that I'm embarking on with QLC-TV. And I just hope that this platform will not only give myself, but give those listening something nice to look forward to when they wake up in the morning. Because if I achieved that, then I've succeeded. Thank you in advance for bearing with me when it comes to the audio quality and some of the editing. Uh, As I've explained throughout uh, the first four episodes, I didn't want to let not having a proper mic and all of the editing skills come in the way of actually starting this thing so thank you for bearing with me and note that from episode five moving forward i have a good mic so all of the audio quality should be consistent from there on so thank you again and enjoy the show today is august 16th 2020 and we have a really great show for you all today first i'll start off by talking about the new blue and exile record called miles an interlude called life And then I will transition into talking about the big news coming out of the United States this past week, which is that Kamala Harris is now the VP to be running alongside Joe Biden in the next presidential election. So starting with this Blue in Exile record, Blue in Exile have collaborated with each other on numerous occasions, most notably Blue's debut record in 2007 titled Below the Heavens. Now this record was in underground classic it didn't really sell all that well Um, but in 2007 when this came out blue very quickly established himself as a really interesting and uh, captivating force in the rap game this this album got a lot of acclaim in both the hip-hop head community but also some mainstream listeners as well because the sound was very soulful it very reminiscent of Jay Dilla, to be honest, uh, in Exile, the rap, the producer side of this uh, collaboration duo. Exile sound is very uh, soulful. There's a lot of elements of melody. It's not like it's some very abstract, difficult record that is challenging and experimental in that way. It was very traditional in a boom bap sound lots of melody, lots of soul, and Blue just killing it on the mic with great wordplay, great flows, but also really introspective lyricism that was really personal, that, like, from the get-go, this was their debut record together, uh, and our my first introduction to Blue, you instantly gravitated to his personality and uh, were able to connect with him on a personal level, and that's really hard to do on just one album. But he was able to do it. And then that record came and went in 2007. Like I said, it didn't sell all that well. And Blue's career started to go down a a strange path. Lots Lots of reasons are due to 
shitty labels like like a lot of artists are are doomed by his next records were a lot a lot more of a low-key affair they were sometimes self-produced sometimes produced by others and they were just really really poorly mixed it was is probably by intention but it was very poorly mixed not marketed and then his real debut his debut effort under a major label called York or No York it it had ambitions of being this really experimental sound that took sounds and had a collaboration from people like Flying Lotus so it's like the electronic glitchy hip hop but the way it was marketed the way it was rolled out was so sloppy there was delays there was uh, different versions of the album and it was a mess and his career from there uh it kind of regained some stability for sure he released another record with with exile that was definitely probably my second favorite album of his up until that moment uh give me my flowers while i can still smell them more jazzy than the last record but still 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 interesting not as good as below the heavens but it was a it was a reestablishing um, for Blue that he could, he is a good rapper and he can create good albums because the music before that was was very shoddy, uh, so he was no one hit wonder by any means. Uh, but after that, not many notable projects. He released a good project with Oh No in 2018 that was, that was relatively solid, as well as a really oddly mixed album, Good to Be Home. Uh, where all of the beats were tuned down so low, although they were really interesting. And that album was a double album. It, it could have been better than what it was, but it was still pretty good. Uh, but, but by no means, what I'm trying to say is, by no means was Blue in a position where people really expected him to deliver another potential classic uh, that would compete with Below the Heavens. But fast forward to 2020 now, he has another album with Exile, and it is a double album, and it is one hour and 30 minutes plus of material. So right off of that, I was concerned. I don't like long albums, but then I am really excited to hear them collaborate again. And he's not someone that I would think is going to be chasing streams just to make money. So I didn't think there'd be filler just for the sake of it, but still one hour and 30 minutes without filler that's pretty hard to do but but i think they pulled it off the dynamic duo of blue and exile came back rejuvenated with a familiar yet more polished sound especially you can hear this through the detail and the production the ambition of the themes and the lyrical scope is is significantly higher than anything blue has ever touched in his career by far and it's just really amazing how all-encompassing the project is. It covers so many different topics, yet it feels focused from start to finish. Uh, I first heard this trip actually on a road trip in a rented 2019 Toyota Corolla. And I, I listened to this on the way to Montreal with my girlfriend. And the speakers on this car were trash like absolute trash and it's a real shame because when I first heard this album I probably ran it back two times 
in full over that uh, over that road trip. And I liked the album, but I did kind of feel like it was a bit flat. Musically, it didn't pack as much of a punch as I was hoping. And I was disappointed. But I think that was definitely because of the speakers. Because when I came home, I put this on my nice Pioneer sound system. And then I put it on my, my Audio-Technica uh, headphones. My, my opinions completely changed. Exile really outdid himself on this production. Uh, I would even go on to say that the production is more impressive than on Below the Heavens because Below the Heavens, like I had mentioned earlier, it 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 drew a lot from that Jay Dilla sound that he that Jay used on Slum Village, which is down tempo drumming, fat bass lines, and mellow chords. Uh, that was what the sound was on Below the Heavens. Really nice for the most part, definitely. But on this album, the level of detail, the intricacies in the drumming and these sounds in which Exile drew from, a lot of them have these either very heavily jazz-inspired, as you would imagine. It's called Miles, and there's a song called Miles Davis, so very clear he's drawing from actual jazz music, but he's also drawing from from African sounds and uh, in, in the chants and in some of the drum patterns. So Exile really upped his game, in my opinion. A track on this called All the Blues shows that level of detail perfectly. There's this gorgeous vocal sample that is blended in so perfectly and somehow doesn't clash with all the vast array of different piano loops, dynamic jazz drumming, and change of tempos that seemingly come out of nowhere. And that's another thing that you'll notice when you listen to this album is that there's often either very clear beat changes or little little variations in the beat, in the drumming, in the sample that keeps things interesting, keeps things fresh. I really appreciate that about this record, especially given how long it is. That really, really was welcomed. Um, on the track... You Ain't Never Been Blue, where the vocals pan in from your left and right speaker really nicely. Uh, or Troubled Water, where it has these dusty drums and African singing chorus that sounds great. Uh, with a really, really nice beat switch that is so triumphant, is so uplifting in, in the latter half of the record. African Dream, uh, Exile uses these really nice African drumming patterns and... Uh, African singing that just sounds so, so soulful, so nice. Like, I, I can't say enough about Exile on the boards. Now, onto the songwriting. I think that was also something that I think is improved from Below the Heavens. The the top-notch choruses on this album is something that you'll notice. The, the singing from these guest vocalists, amazing. Particularly Miguel on American Dream. I, I, it's actually funny. People don't know this. Miguel actually collabed with Blue on Below the Heavens, and you can even see how far removed Miguel still was from his actual solo career that is that was very successful and still is very successful, uh, where he's called Miguel Jontel. He's called ac after his actual real name, which is hilarious because he obviously goes by Miguel now, but he killed that chorus. But this is still a Blue record, right? And I've spoke about the songwriting and the production, but now I need to talk about the lyricism because 
that's the the real main course of this album and needless to say blue delivers he covers this massive scope of lyrics that cover personal stories of growth of struggle both as he tried to navigate the rap game and got played by record labels uh, but also personal stories of growth as a person in his own life as a father and he also talks about religion a lot more than he had previously on any other record uh, in my opinion uh, specifically on records like dear lord where he he imagines this utopian world where we all respect each other's religious differences and don't eat meat he, he mentions that a lot actually he's clearly a, a very strong vegan um, but we 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 rise up and promote collectivist actions to stop world hunger it's he just goes through it really great song and the chorus the the beat that exile packed with this song really elevates it it's really gospel infused so it's really inspiring and so he covers those kinds of subjects then he also talks about subjects of black liberation and of really honoring his ancestors and his roots and no song does that more than the track roots of blue which is probably the best song on the album it's a nine minute opus of blue referencing many fallen uh, prominent black people uh, in throughout history whether it be musical history or civil rights history anything in between all over this menacing beat with these hand claps and I don't really know exactly what sounds I'm hearing, but Exile kills this. It's so climactic. It's so urgent. And it, it really encompasses what this album does best. It all comes together so well, yet it doesn't come off preachy. It doesn't come off too heavy. They strike a good balance between the substantial subject matter and, uh, and lyricism with the more lighter instrumentation at times the lighter melodic hooks it they do a really good job of making this palatable without sacrificing any of the important topics that they're covering the only real significant gripe i have with this project is it's not really too significant but it's just the fact that some of the songs particularly true and living uh just stick out as being a lot more simple than the rest of the album musically and lyrically it doesn't really hit very hard it's not really that detail it doesn't really add to the album too much and then also there's quite a there's quite enough times where there's an extended outro that maybe could have been taken off that i think just kind of hampers the flow of the album but again these are very minor because this album is truly great and definitely something you need to check out. It's arguable to, th to say that this is better than Below the Heavens. So at this moment, I think it's still... I still need some more time to marinate on that idea. But I will say that this album is right there with it and still could be better. But I think that thing that is not arguable about Miles and what Blue and Exile delivered here is that they set out to do something that was bigger and more ambitious than Below the Heavens, and I think they definitely succeeded. So on my Rowview certified scale, I'd give this album a strong 8.7 on 10.
So now I want to move on to the dumpster fire that is the United States. So what I want to talk about is the fact that Kamala Harris, a black slash Indian former district attorney of San Francisco, who has now been named the VP to run alongside Joe Biden in the upcoming presidential election to try to defeat Donald Trump. So who is Kamala Harris in more detail? Well, I wouldn't say her profile was that of an A-lister like Hillary Clinton or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She wasn't always in the headlines or anything like that. But she was still relatively popular, and if you watch any of her speeches or watch her particularly roast people in the Senate, uh, she famously cross-examined uh, Brett Kavanaugh, who's now a, uh, a member of the Supreme Court in the United States, who was, in my opinion, obviously allegedly, but in my opinion, a very obvious rapist and sexually assaulted women in the past. And when he was being cross-examined by Kamala Harris, you can see, you can see that she's a very intelligent woman. You can tell that she's very bright and she's very sharp and she's cunning. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's those are all positives. But what are what are her policies? What are her what is her ideology? That's where it's very clear, as you will further hopefully listen to this podcast and hear me talk about my views on on politics and on culture and all that. You will see that she is very much the antithesis of the type of politician that I would ever want to support. She's very corporatist and she is a person that is very centrist, so she's a lot like Joe Biden that when it comes to social issues, Kamala Harris is not a type that'll propose anything that's all that bold. She'll kind of just go wherever the wind blows and then just agree with it very late. Uh, she's a lot like Obama in that way that where he proposed gay marriage and, and got that passed about seven years after it would have been possible. So that's the idea with Kamala. She's just a panderer. She'll do the bare minimum. But she's also a person that is very famous for this truancy clip that has gone viral. And that's funny because I've actually seen this like three years ago and I was appalled then and I'm still appalled now. She, in an effort to make sure students go to school and don't skip and all that, she proposed and actually followed through with prosecuting the parents of students that skip school. In these disadvantaged communities in San Francisco. This is absolutely psycho stuff. This is absolutely psychotic. Like instead of trying to improve the conditions that are causing these students in these poor neighborhoods to, to skip school, instead of improving any of those conditions, whether it be the fact that the school that's near these students are so underfunded and so poor and crappy that they're forced to go travel three hours just to get a decent education instead of doing any of that instead of improving any of those conditions you just go ahead and attack those that need our help most with actual prosecutorial powers this is the definition of the type of conservative mentality which is instead of trying to improve conditions give people equal opportunities you just go ahead and attack those that have done things that we think are unfavorable without at all addressing the conditions that create these unwanted behaviors. 
So the last thing I want to say about this Kamala truancy thing, I think is very illuminating to her character. It's not just the fact that she enacted this horrible law, but it's the the manner in which she speaks about it in this conference uh, that uh, from a clip that I got from the Federalist Project where she explains this law. I won't show the whole clip, but parts of what I won't show is in the beginning of the clip where she just absolutely nerds out over the different little elements of the letterhead, the official letterhead from the, the DA of San Francisco, and just showing how legit and scary this letter would be that she was sending to these parents. And you can just tell she's just loving it. She's loving she's loving the way that she's making these parents feel. You can just tell she's so enthused with the level of fear she's going to stoke in all these parents of people that need our help. It's it's just gross. But as it relates to the clip that I actually will show in this episode, hear the tone in which he speaks in. Hear the delight and the laughter that she shows in this clip. It's absolutely so weird and so gross. And it's very illustrative of the kind of person that Kamala is. It is really disgusting. And this is the kind of person that many so-called left-wing people are so happy because she's our Daisy queen. We need more brown women bombing brown people in other countries. That's how these people feel like. But anyway, here's the clip. So I decided I was going to start prosecuting parents for truancy. Well, this was a little controversial in San Francisco. <laughs> So, I sent a letter out on my letterhead to every parent in the school district outlining the connection that was statistically proven between elementary school truancy, high school dropouts, who will become a victim of crime, and who will become a perpetrator of crime. We sent it out to everyone. A friend of mine actually called me and he said, Kamala, my wife got the letter. She freaked out. She brought all the kids into the living room, held up the letter, said, if you don't go to school, Kamala's going to put you and me in jail. <laughs> yes, we achieved intended effect. So anyways, now moving on to the economics of Kamala. Economically, she's definitely center. She will do the bare minimum when it comes to protecting basic social security and basic uh, basic human rights like that but she's definitely not a true proponent of things like medicare for all although she signed some bills that said she'd sponsor it and all that it's not true i'm just gonna say that really clearly we've heard this and seen this movie before we've seen this particularly with obama which is one of the reasons why i really don't like that man because he pandered to the idea of being super progressive and then just flip-flopped on all of it and Kamala Harris is is exactly like that except way less politically skillful and not as good of a charismatic speaker although she has some charisma she's not Obama Obama was a legend when it comes to that um, and her policies seem more progressive than Obama just because it's 2020 but if you kind of scale them to time and proportionalize them based on where the public is leaning now versus when Obama ran. It's pretty similar. It's a wash, pretty much. 
So these talks of her being the most progressive VP ever elected is meaningless because it's just redundant. We're 2020. They didn't elect a completely far-right lunatic. So yeah, they are the most progressive because that's not saying much. The last VP was Joe Biden in the Democratic uh, Party. So that tells you all you need to know. So Kamala Harris's policies, yes, I do not like them at all. But do I think she was the right pick? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because what were their options? Now, if we take aside the Bernie Sanders and the Elizabeth Warrens of the world, who obviously would have been a better better de- Democratic candidate that would have aligned more to my views, this was never, ever going to happen. The establishment made it perfectly clear the way they ousted Bernie the hell out of there when he was running to be the primary nominee uh, for the Democrats. So taking those unrealistic choices aside, Kamala was the best because she demographically is very valuable for all those fake-ass woke people who see that she's black, see that she's a woman, and will vote for her solely based on that. Yet she's not an actual real progressive, so... But the establishment doesn't have to worry about Kamala not upholding that classic corporatist status quo that continues to rape and pillage poor folks, and particularly people of color in in the United States. And I excuse the triggering language, but it, it couldn't be more accurate to what is going on in the United States right now. And this neoliberal wing that Kamala and Biden represent has continuously found their ways to insidiously co-opt movements that are aimed to combat uh, all of these far-right governments like Trump and Bolsonaro in the Brazil that, that have been sprouting up over the past few years. And what I mean by neoliberal really quickly is basically it's a different form of liberalism that's very in favor of the free market of deregulation. And those are people like Barack Obama, but then there's people like Justin Trudeau in my country in Canada, uh, people like uh, Macron in, in France, he's a, he's a prototypical neoliberal. They do very little to, to protect social security and the social safety net, but overall they're, they're in the pockets of the, of the rich folks and they, they make sure that they're their primary constituent that they protect. And although, like I said, I, I think this was the right choice strategically given the options available, my worry is that this continued response to far-right extremism should not be met with these half-measures, corporatist policies, and instead should be replaced by actual, true, left-wing, human-centric government action that actually uplifts those people in need and doesn't just pander to them and give them $1,200 over the course of the last five months in a pandemic. That fact alone, that stimulus bill in the states, that is disgusting. I don't even, I don't even know. Eviction rates in all states, I, I read this, I think, a couple weeks ago, the lowest eviction rate in any state in the United States is like 20 or 25%. Like, it, it's mayhem. I, I just, my heart goes out to, to all those those folks there. Uh, but it's it's really this, this again, this, this response to far-right extremism with just corporatist neoliberalism is what worries me 
because whenever an actual progressive movement has gained steam or actually gained power, like um, very notably in Brazil with Lula, uh, the establishment proceeds to use all of their power, all of their resources, and what they did in Brazil, they executed a coup, falsely trumped up start charges of corruption against Lula and got him the hell out of there, replaced him with a with a with a puppet that they could control. And that kind of thing keeps happening everywhere. Bernie, when he was actually looking like he was inevitably gonna win, I even said that at work. I was talking to some of my coworkers and I was like, I guarantee Bernie will win. This was after the last state that he had just won where he destroyed the competition. But then right before Super Tuesday, in an unexpected yet brilliant move strategically, all of the democratic uh, neoliberal uh, centrist candidates all dropped out and endorsed Biden all at once, coalescing that vote into one specific candidate, and it destroyed Bernie. It was genius, but that kind of organized movement that's backed again by resources of the rich people of the influential that's a huge force that is very difficult to combat and it brings me to to michael brooks the 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 late michael brooks who i spoke about in episode four of this show where he specifically talked about how he was hoping that the left became a bit more machiavellian and that's where it brings me to because Bernie and those in that team, they should have had a plan. They should have been prepared. And maybe they had no way against this. Fine, I understand. It's a huge force. But the the, the right wing and these neoliberal, neoliberal stooges in the middle, they are very good at organizing their resources and destroying any any semblance of an actual progressive movement and i just hope that the left wing will will eventually be able to coalesce similarly and 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 actually wield the power that we know that we can have because although the rich people they have the money they have the influence we have the power in numbers we are actually going to help the most people so we have that power. We just need to sway people and persuade people and influence them to change their behaviors, both in how they believe, but also in how they vote. And this leads me to an interesting discussion about the whole concept of voting. And I fully understand those who don't support voting because they think it's of no use and they don't want to support uh, policies that they vehemently disagree with, even if there's another alternative that's maybe slightly worse. It all goes to that lesser of two evils argument. And I kind of fall in the middle, I guess you could say, is that, yes, if I was in taking the United States, as we were talking about, if I was in a state that could potentially swing towards the, uh, the Republicans in the United States, yes, I would vote... I would vote for the Democrats and Joe Biden. But I don't shame people who don't. And I think there's different ways to make change. And the way I see it is that I think there needs to be a tandem work of both the more formal 
established way of making change through the voting process, through the governmental political process. But then I think there needs to be a simultaneous force and organization in the grassroots uh, movements to activate the public, stimulate them, get them engaged, persuade them to adopt beliefs that are more radical, that are more progressive, so that when it comes down to voting time, the public actually now has genuine beliefs that are aligned with what would seemingly be fringe, progressive, left-wing ideas that would be way too utopian to ever be enacted and gaining a consensus and a mass movement and mass support. So what I'm trying to say is, overall, I see government as the most efficient way to change people's lives, divert resources on a mass scale, but I see the other informal, but hopefully and, and necessarily heavily organized and focused collectivist action and grassroots movements as the necessary complement to government action and the required force to shift actual public opinion because then the progressive candidates and the progressive policies will no longer become, oh, you can that will never actually pass in real life. We gotta vote for this stupid neoliberal stooge because they are better than the vehemently racist right winger. No. If this in a perfect world, if this actually happens, the more progressive candidate would be more palatable and likely to win because the public actually generally agrees, not only agrees with something, but believes it's possible. Believes that this new world this new way of thinking, this new way of governing and organizing uh, a country and organizing resources is not only the right thing to do, but it's actually very possible because the public is not only believing in something, but they're activated and are demanding it from their leaders to enact or else. You see this in the United States right now with all the protests and you can go whine all you can about property damage they have made very real change very quickly and they've been doing it with a lot of resistance a lot of noise that have that have muddied the situation and muddied their message yet even withstanding all of that they've actually been able to influence things and make some change so i believe that government and collectivist grassroots action need to work in tandem as i described for those reasons I described, but also a reason I believe this is because I don't think society generally learns and shifts behaviors and beliefs through the current political mechanisms of some rich person, very well-off person in government speaking at a podium and telling them, this is what I believe, this is the right thing to do, I am the person to do it, because very reasonably it comes off cheap and the public very fairly questions one the motivations of a person like this do they not just want to get power and can they even trust this person all through history it's been very clear that those answers to those two questions have been often no so if we can create a dynamic where the public is not only so aligned with left-wing policies but are so activated and energized to demand that from their politicians 
well, then that's the perfect world where they have no choice but to listen to these people or else they'll lose their power and lose their position in government, which is aligning to their self-interest. So that would be the perfect world. But I by no means am any organizer. And so I don't know the perfect answer. I don't know how to really get to this utopia. But that's just how I feel about voting and how I think it is a good thing to do. I understand those who don't do it, but I do think it's a good thing to do. And I do think it's effective only if it's coupled with an actual strong foundational grassroots movement where the public is energized and activated, expecting and demanding change. In this whole dynamic, I have been focusing on the United States because of we were talking about Kamala Harris earlier, but this dynamic is is definitely, to be clear, not just in the United States. It's in Canada where I live, where we're stuck in this neoliberal purgatory as well. And the thing I hate so much about the United States is that they're so bad, but because it's the United States, they market their shitty corruption, their shitty policies, their lack of absolutely any care for the poor and the marginalized communities in their countries. They market it and make it so entertaining for the rest of the world because everybody knows about U.S. politics and everybody can point to the the United States and say that, oh, well, at least our country isn't like them. And so if I take Canada, we can, they've, the United States has created an environment where people in Canada can be like, oh, my prime minister just agreed to divert funds from healthcare and education to fund a bloated, unnecessary military. But at least he's not the orange drunk man. Ha ha ha. They have done such irreparable damage. I hope it's not irreparable, but it feels like that every single day. They've done so much irreparable damage just to the concept of what people should expect from their government. It delegitimizes any other criticisms of other governments to a large extent because people are just brainwashed to think that, oh, well, as long as we're not as bad as the states, we're, we're fine, and that's not true. And that's such a common thing in, in Canada, especially because we're the, the next-door neighbors to that country. And I really hope it can stop because it's so dismissive to the, to the transgressions that have happened in Canada because we have a very bloody history ourselves. And it's just so dismissive to any problems that happen in Canada, and it makes the conversation so useless if one party doesn't even believe that we have any real serious problems just because they compare our, themselves constantly to the United States. So yeah, the United States, not good. So that concludes what I wanted to talk about in today's episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I really appreciate the support. I love doing this, and I can't wait to continue doing more of these episodes of QLC TV moving forward. If you want to follow me, support the podcast, please subscribe on all the podcast channels that you use, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and so on. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at Roview. So that's R-O-H-V-I-E-W. And shoot me a comment, send me a DM, and feel free to suggest whatever topic you think I should cover, whether it be some political discussion, music, etc. Or if you just wanted to 
send me some feedback about something that you think I should improve on or consider changing as it relates to the show. I'm definitely all ears. I wanted to start this podcast to, to help myself grow, help myself uh, express myself more efficiently, more concisely, more effectively. So I'm always open to anything that I should improve on, whether it be about how I deliver the show or just to criticize some horrible take that I had. I'm all ears. And I'd like to extend an open invitation to anybody who's listening right now who would like to join me in a discussion on any topic of your liking. Just shoot me a DM, post a comment, and I would love to do that because I want to connect with you guys who are listening as much as I can and foster a community. So thank you once again for listening. Peace.